Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everyone. I'm Catherine Nichols here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book per year of the 20th century. Today is our second episode about Cheaper by the Dozen, and it's a continuation of our conversation with April Holm that we started last week. April is an American history professor at the University of Mississippi. Uh, Her book is called A Kingdom Divided, Evangelicals, Loyalty, and Sectionalism in the Civil War Era. And in general, she studies slavery in the Civil War, and that's more relevant to some of the subjects we cover in this episode than last episode. Uh, Just as a warning, some of our audio files weren't in great shape uh, for parts of this, so We had to do some knitting to get the episode to sound like an episode. Um, There are probably a few places where it still sounds uneven. So thank you for putting up with that. I hope the content will be worth it. Uh, A quick summary of the book, uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, came out in 1948. It's about a family where the parents are both professional efficiency experts and they have 12 kids. Sandy told us in the last episode that the mom of this family invented the wall-mounted light switch. So... Uh, Let's see if she can top that. The book's published in 1948, and at this time, Frank Bunker uh, Gilbreth Jr., who's the the male author of the book, is living in Charleston, South Carolina. And that is the year that South Carolina, with three other southern states, voted for a Dixiecrat instead of a Democrat, Strom Thurmond. So, so there's all of that going on in the background, and he's like apparently psychically damaged from coming back from the war, like the World War II. You don't feel the presence of two world wars in this book at all. It's, there is the World War One though, because yeah. um, as soon as it breaks out, the dad is like, um, "Tell the president he can use me however he wants, and if he doesn't know how, I'll tell him how yeah. to use me." Yeah, yeah. which is <laughs> he's like, "Send the president a telegram." Yeah, it's all this gung ho <laughs> stuff about about war, written by somebody who actually has just come back from a war, which really messed him up. So I, you know, that's all. That's all. Yeah, I I definitely think there's something in that forced grin, cheerfulness about all of these things that are definitely. Um, horrifying if you scratch the surface and that they've actually lived through how horrifying they are. And the fact that it came out in 1948 and it was already a movie with Myrna Loy, a, you know, like movie star, movie stars two years later. And, you know, it's, you said Sandy that you were choosing the book because it like, it doesn't seem like an important historical text, but it's, it's not canonical in a way, but it's also sort of in our culture and in our minds. 
because it was so popular. Yeah, it's exemplary of a cultural tendency that is with us to this day, and which a lot of people are attempting to force us to go back to. Like a lot, a lot of the pushback against the sixteen nineteen project is because it's it's like fundamentally breaking with that kind of smiley pretense that everything used to be fine and this you know wonderful happy family that is America. Um, yeah, and I think in terms of the time period it's depicting and the time period it's written in are both um, kind of moments where you can find a lot of that American um, optimism that might be a little oppressive to anyone who's not conforming, but especially in the 1950s or in the post-war period, I mean, that is, this book does appeal to, I think, um, that like baby boomer post-war, uh, the economy starting to pick up, we're going to have a bunch of children and we're all going to like find satisfaction in family life. You know, that I think does, that can explain its popularity in the middle of the 20th century. I also, I just read a review um, in the Washington Post from quite recently um, by I think Jonathan Yardley um, saying that he revisited it as an adult and um, and really liked it and found it very funny and charming. Oh. And uh, well, I was thinking one of the things that I liked when I was a kid is that if you're a child among children, you don't entirely necessarily perceive your parents as working when they're spending time with you. Mm. You're just like, here I am hanging out uh, with my siblings and my parents. We're all having fun together. And you don't necessarily think, oh, my parents are doing a lot of work to make sure everyone stays cheerful and everyone stays clean and everyone stays safe and, you know, all of these things. Um, and I think it's entirely possible that you could go through life without ever necessarily perceiving the amount of work um, or um, kind of the exertion of power that is happening inside the story and you could like... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think that there's there's like moments in society where you could think um, that you're just hanging out with your family when you're hanging out with your uh, 11 brothers and sisters and your two parents. Um, and then there's moments of society where it seems incredibly obvious that this is like the hand of power is pressing down on these people um, and forcing them to play their parts in this sort of progressive uh, plan. But that is kind of, I think, where a lot of nostalgia comes from, <laughs> just not having to, when you were a child, you didn't have to think about how much work was going. Well, that's not true for everyone, but, you know, um, it's certainly not, in this it's... case, um, <laughs> you know, that at least that's the way he was presenting it. And I guess with the context of the war trauma, perhaps it has a particular appeal for Frank Gilbreth Jr., I think it's sort of interesting that there's this fascination with large families that um, at least in our culture, maybe it's cross-cultural, but I, when I thought about it, there there are so many cultural artifacts that are based on that fantasy of a large family from the Waltons to, um, the, I don't know if anyone even remembers this TV show, Eight is Enough, which was about a family of eight children, mm. um, and then Cheaper by the Dozen and all of the other books that we were talking about. And there seems to be like some kind of like, yearning for that atmosphere of having an entire clan around you. That mm -hmm. 
Um, Sandy, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but I was reading that um, like the idea of the pre-revolution Russian family Christmas was like a huge cultural production, like the Nutcracker being just one of the elements of what a big deal this was for people who had lived through the Russian Revolution and then everything that came after it in um, the Soviet Union. And it, it kind of has that feeling a little bit of like, if these people have just lived through World War Two, uh, they need to create like essentially the nutcracker about their own childhood. Yeah. I, I discovered a, a review of the original 1950 film in the New York Times written by someone with the wonderful period name of Bosley Crowther, which <laughs> we can all agree that at least we do miss names like Bosley Crowther. But anyway, he, he described it as a pian to filial piety and a blissfully comforting display of the authority which a strong-minded papa has over 12 respectful kids, which is... <laughs> so that's how it seemed yep. like at the time. And, and it's, yeah. it's true. It's bl- a blissfully comforting display. Is it true? I don't know, but it's definitely blissfully comforting. Yeah. I mean, Sandra, you were talking about um, some TV shows, but, and, you know, there was this whole spate of reality television around oh. big families as well. Um, you know, like the, the Duggar family and the ones that had, I can't remember their names, the had all the triplets or something and ended up with a bunch of kids. Oh, John and Kate. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that maybe that is also, I mean, especially with the ones that are, um, you know, conservative evangelical Christian families um, that might be that blissful um, control of a strong patriarch or whatever. I think that (laughs) that is exactly the vibe those families were going for. So, you know, maybe the appeal still exists for a lot of people even now. It's, I know that kind well, of is on television still. Um, I think that the that that was why that last chapter surprised me is because I was thinking like if one of the oldest Duggar children had been like actually I want to be a flapper, oh um, yeah, hmm. or they wouldn't have just been like oh sure great that's that's fantastic honey go get him. Um, hmm. And that was why that that struck me as almost the um, like the key to the whole book was that they were capable of being so confident that they were even able to be flexible at the end. You know, the difference... Even though they had not been flexible ever up until that point. The difference between now and 1948 really is that it is unimaginable that if anyone published this book now about a family with 12 children who and how happy it all was, that one of the other kids wouldn't have cashed in by writing the anti-cheaper by the dozen, which is just about so what an abusive true. train wreck the whole enterprise was. Uh-huh. The sheep. Exactly. Yeah, the yeah, the sheep would feature. It would have a picture of the sheep on the cover. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Poor sheep. And that is, I mean, there's not, obviously that's not published, but, you know, if you just like do a little Googling, you know, even the fact that they didn't, you know, that one of the children died very early in childhood. I mean, I guess we haven't really talked about the degree to which it's fictionalized um, Mm. because there were, you know, that there were never 12 children even in the family um, at one time. um, And that a lot of those kind of like dark moments are just left out. And I, I, I was thinking maybe it's a little weird style. It's this really episodic and kind of jumps back and forth with mm. the timeline where you're not really, it's not a just chronological narrative at all. It's just sort of like amusing tales, 
there always seemed to be 12 children, even though if you do, if you think about it, there rarely could have ever been all the children at home. Um, and so and I they think, just refer to the youngest one as the babies anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it never matters, quite yeah. clear. So like that also allows the book to skip over anything that's negative because it's not trying to actually give you, here's an account of how this happened or, you know, the blow by blow of how our family grew. And it's, it's more just like amusing episodes in our life that aren't even, we, we can't even piece together the order that they happened in. And so it, it leaves, it makes it very easy for them to leave out the possibly negative parts talked about just sort of the dark side of progressivism in general, but I also think specifically bringing it to the experience of living in this family, I also was really turned off by the glorification of efficiency as the ultimate, as the best way to live, you know, that if you're not being efficient Mm -hmm. and productive all the time, then you're not, then you're not contributing to your fullest or you're not, you don't have as much value. I mean, the book really, it's like, you can't even brush your teeth without doing something else at the same time. It's just, it's, it's oppressive, you know, that, that, that this real valorization of productivity as the ultimate important value and that, that you can't have worth if you're not constantly producing um, was, you know, that also really struck me on, on the reread. And just, I briefly mentioned the way that that kind of, Pushing for efficiency all at all times, you know, it obviously created, um, you know, it contributed to uh, undermining workers' autonomy, um, and also just um, creating quotas for work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, Sandra. You mentioned the 1619 project, so I guess I could talk about slavery briefly because <laughs> I had <laughs> in my graduate class we had just um, read. Baptists, um, the half has never been told, which um, is a kind of recasting of American slavery in terms of capitalism. And one of the points he makes is about um, the way that enslaved people were um, forced to work ever harder and be ever more efficient through these quotas, like weighing how much cotton mm. you could pick in a day and then never you know, being punished if you drop below that. And um, you know, I'm not here to talk about that book, like there's more to be said about it, but just in terms of the idea of efficiency as this unimpeachably great goal that everyone should have, um, you know, it's really off-putting, you know. Well, and it's still like hugely, like if you, like every single step of how packages are delivered, like whether it's um, Uh Amazon warehouses or UPS, it's like, obviously this is not the past. This is, no, this is the present. Mm -hmm. And then I think people critique it more when they're talking about, um, uh, having to brand and present yourself on the internet, like how, like, um, whether it's lifestyle blogging or whether it's, you know, uh, having kids on social media and thinking like, oh, well, how will I feel if, uh, this gossip that I share about my friend turns into me not getting a job later, the feeling of, um, surveillance Mm -hmm. to the point that you wouldn't even think of stepping out of line because the surveillance is so complete. Um, In some ways, the current day is just like these people's wildest dreams of success. (laughs) Yeah. Their, their biggest innovation was filming things. So where, where, where Taylor of Taylorism was just having someone stand there with a stopwatch. Frank Gilbreth introduced the innovation of having people filmed all the time they were working in order to determine the most efficient way of moving. 
Yeah. yeah. And um, wall light switches, though, like... Yeah, wall light that switches is, are good. Like, it's tough to argue with wall light switches. Yeah, and the pedal, um, the pedal trash can is good, too. Uh, but you can really see why um, people did try to rebel against this. Like, even though I don't, I don't know that anyone's rebellion against this way of thinking has actually been all that successful yet. No, we're still, you know, trying to find our life hacks and whatever to make ourselves more efficient all the time. And I mean, I'm guilty as anyone of, of not really questioning whether or not that should be my goal. Um, but, and like you said, with, you know, Amazon deliveries and just a lot of this stuff that we have more information than ever about how long it takes people to do things. And that just gives um, their employers more ability to tell them. And like children's, children's TV shows also, like I'm thinking of Kipper um, right this minute because uh, it's just it memorably just um, horrified me where the plot is that um, one puppy hurts his thumb a little bit but then he wants attention. So he claims that he hurt his thumb a lot. And the, the good puppy is just like, no, you're not really in pain. You are faking it for attention. And that's like the right reaction that the oh, show dear. is like, this is how you ought to behave. It's like, be skeptical if your friends tell you that they hurt their thumb. And in fact, it's true that, um, that the hurt puppy was in fact faking it for attention. And I was like, okay, I get that this was the plot of the secret garden um, that the kid was somehow faking a hunchback for attention or sadness and that what he really needed was like fresh air and sunlight and to be bullied by another <laughs> child. Um, but this is still the plot of so many children's, like, you know, just so many of the things that we give kids are also still based on the same thing that is, that is just all the way through this book, which is, if you say what's happening around me is not working for me, I'm in pain, I'm sick, or I don't like it, you know, any of those things. It's just like that the, the um, it's like a, a failure of cheer on your part. Yeah, and and the, like, you just need to get with the program. And the only way for the children to push back against it at all is just to engage in it. Like when they, that horrible practical joke the dad plays of like, I mean, making the kids put their heads under the car hood and then blowing the horn in their ears, you know, like the only, again, it's just the one kid finally plays the same joke on his dad and that's sort of celebrated. So the only way to kind of push back against it is just to participate in inflicting it on mm. other people. Yeah. Yeah. You really wouldn't want to be the, <laughs> the person who doesn't enjoy practical jokes in that family, but we don't hear, we don't get a lot of individual personality of the younger children either. And I do think it's interesting. This is written by the older children. Um, you know, so. Well, it's even seen as like a charming quirk of the mothers that she thinks of them as individual people and not oh, yeah, <laughs> just <sorry>. like <laughs> um, the mass that she yeah. has formed yeah. Um, yeah. the way the father does. <sighs> okay, so I just have to bring up the birth control anecdote, where the the woman who the sort of unimaginable woman who couldn't really exist, who has supposedly come to the house to talk about birth control, and she is represented as disapproving of people having children, mm-hmm. which clearly was not the point of birth control in in any period, <laughs> but. 
But apart from that, it's it, then there's this prank that's played on her where Lillian supposedly pretends to be interested and then the children begin to emerge. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, it turns out that this woman who pretended to be interested in birth control actually has many children. And this this is at a period, like it would be decades before birth control was, was actually legal, even for married people. So it, it's actually like really an abomination of an anecdote. Yeah, I mean, and she actually um, has a planned family. I mean, I know that it's 12 children, but she they, they planned to have 12, and then they clearly say in the book there will not be any more after 12. So she actually does practice family planning. And it is like you; these are highly educated people, so presumably they did understand what birth control was and what the purpose of birth control was. So th- like this is one point where the whatever distortion is going on does not seem benign or does not seem accidental in any way, or doesn't even seem to be the product of an internal process of not wanting to admit the difficulty of your childhood, but actually like a political program, which is kind of creepy in a similar way to Donald Trump pretending that environmental regulations are about small windows is creepy. I wonder if that is, you know, also, you know, learning from you, Sandra, that the mother didn't like the book, you know, and that she didn't like the husband's jokes about her pregnancies and things, you know, I mean, I I can imagine that she might not have liked that anecdote, although I don't really know. But it also does feel like something maybe a product of the 19, the post-war period, and maybe a product Mm -hmm. of the children's perspective. Um, because actually that woman and also the, I think she's like a psychologist or something, the woman that comes in to do the intelligence studies mm-hmm. are both just like ruthlessly mocked by the book. And these are two other professional women, you know, the one, yeah. the birth control activist and the, um, the, the, the academic who's doing the intelligence studies, they make fun of her appearance. They make fun of her whole project. They mock her research, whatever, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. she's just a laughing a butt of another joke from the father, kind of like the way that the birth control woman uh, advocate is made a butt of a joke. So, yeah, I think there is something here about the way the professional women are being written about by the, the, you know, again, it's not the mother who wrote the book, so we don't know what her own perspective on her career was. But the fact that the mother's career is so downplayed um, the while she's, you know, a mother, and then the fact that the two professional women are the butts of jokes um, does suggest that could be something, you know, the the lens brought in by the authors of the book of being critical of women with careers. And I would also add that an interesting thing about the kids is that of the six girls, Ernestine who wrote the book is the only one who had a career. But I would also say that none of, none of the 12 children had large families. So presumably almost all of them Mm. like were using birth control. I do think they all represent um, things that progressives were interested in. Intelligence studies, absolutely, you know, and birth control, yes. Again, that has to do with that kind of like um, reproductive hygiene and, and things like that. Um, so they are all they are all other progressive interests, but yeah, they're not. And it might be because the people, the the authors of the book, don't see the their father as part of that movement, really. You know, so maybe they're not. Pen- connecting I don't know I mean but it's like the the fact that the father even had the connections with these people to have them come around you know suggests that he was he and uh Lillian were 
had a kind of reform and progressive circle that they were moving in. I didn't find it as funny as I did when I was a kid. I remember finding it funny as a kid. Um, I was expecting to find it more funny, but I did find it fun. Yeah. Like, even though I was sort yeah. of like reading with my hands over my eyes, sometimes thinking like, ah, that asshole. I also <laughs> did not, I wasn't dreading picking it up or anything. It was like easy and fun to read. Yeah, it is, it is you definitely know? still easy and fun to read. I mean, I'm not sure if we, we want to, we're not exactly recommending the book, but, <laughs> but it's certainly, it's fun and it's, and it's interesting in its own way. Mm -hmm. I recommend rereading it if you read and enjoyed it as a child, just for sort of an eye-opening experience um, that I was really surprised at how differently I remembered it. So I, you know, that was I enjoyed that, just revisiting yeah. something as an adult. There are strange, you can get like really, I mean, I read Gone with the Wind as a child and attempting to reread that as an adult. I've, I've still never cracked chapter two in that book as an adult because <laughs> I want to understand what the book did to me, but I can't face the truth. <laughs> no, it's, it's excruciating. I completely agree. I've tried that one also for the same oh, reason. Yeah, this one spares you. I mean, it, it, as Catherine said, it goes quickly. Uh, you don't have to. It's not a huge investment. If you're the person who designs Amazon warehouses um, <laughs> and then makes a ton of money off of it um, and just never even has the capacity to think about it in an ethical way, um, you feel great. <laughs> and. And that's kind of like the cheerfulness of the book seems like sinister. Yeah. I, I was actually, there was something that I was, I was saying on Twitter uh, about how part of ethics is, is not just what you decide is good and evil, but which kinds of questions you frame as ethical questions. And I think the way this book feels now, as opposed to how it feels as a child, is all about that. It's all about like whether you frame the death of the sheep as an ethical question, because as soon as you see it. That was it, a really good tweet. Oh, thank you. I, was, I, I hit like, but I think I hit it pretty emphatically. <laughs> thank you for your emphatic like. That's but anyway, <laughs> I, th I think that's part of it. Like, you are you going to frame this this entire story as an as a possible as possibly having a place in our ethical understanding of the world and our understanding of of cruelty and kindness and or are you just going to see it as ha ha? This is the way the world is, and isn't it adorable? second episode on Cheaper by the Dozen. Thank you so much for listening to us at Lit Century, and thank you to April for talking to us. We'd also like to thank Adam Bear for our podcast music and Lit Hub for hosting us. Next week, we'll have a conversation with author Ellen Tarlow about Arnold Lobel's Frog and Toad books. Until then, if you'd like to write to us, send us an email at litcenturypodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at litcenturypod because we'd love to hear from you. Goodbye till next week. <laughs>